Well, we want to welcome you to the Reformed Informants. This is a podcast devoted to biblical exposition, systematic theology, and practical application for the good of the church. I'm Lance Burroughs, along with TJ Darty, and we are the Reformed Informants. How's it going out there in Kentucky land? Man, before we talk about me, you just finished up finals, did you not? I Man, whew. I finished them up in flying colors, man. Flying colors. Good. Oh, yeah. You still on probation or you get off of that? Uh, no. I think I uh, got off of academic probation back in uh, December. Yeah, what our listeners don't know is that when I was an unbelieving pagan wild child that my GPA in college was so low and so pathetic that I had to go into seminary on probation and let me tell you i came out on the other side bro man if that's not a picture of of old new man grace all that's man there's there's a sermon in there you know waiting to be preached no that's it's got to feel so good for you to be on the other side of that so what's next you have uh you have a break uh before summer stuff starts back up or what yeah besides celebrate that i'm no longer on probation um which is going to be a long celebration. Now I'm just taking one class this summer, Theology 2, when we start that um, uh, actually this week. So I'm looking forward to a lighter school load, mm-hmm. but I'm also looking forward to uh, still being in class. This is a two-way live stream, of course, because I'm streaming uh, classes from Texas to uh, California. So this will be a live course, which I'm excited about. Yeah, man, that's good. That's exciting stuff. Yeah, nothing, nothing new in our world. Same, same thing here. So um, excited to be able to sit down and and record an episode. This becomes one of my. I have. I, I can't say it's my favorite part of the week because I still I'm getting to preach every week and love being hanging out with your family too and stuff. Yeah, that those things are important. So I like that. But I do. I still enjoy. And Monday afternoons are, they're always a joy for me, even though all the work we put in preparing, sometimes it feels like, oh man, I got to make sure I'm, make sure I'm doing my part. We're all doing, making all these decisions about what we need to do. But every time we hit, we hit record and we just start talking, it's just, it's a, it's an encouraging and edifying time for me. So I'm, I'm glad to be able to do this. So, um, so man, what, what do we got today? What's, what's, uh, what's on the schedule? What's on the agenda? Yeah, today we are recording episode 41, and this is a mailbag episode, and we'll explain that here in just a minute. Uh, But the title is Senior Citizens, Demons, and UFOs. So we've got a little odd mix there, a little odd mix, mixed bag of different topics, different themes. But you want to tell us uh, where uh, we're going with this episode? Yeah, so the the concept behind the mailbag is kind of one of those things where we get questions, some of them kind of casual offhand, just friends, family members, whomever, just texting us or messaging, hey, what do you guys think about this? Or this might be an interesting topic. And other times we get questions that roll in saying, hey, I'd really like for you guys to break this down. Help me think through this. This is something I'm I'm really struggling with or would like a, a full conversation on. And so we've gotten over the over the course of the past several months, those questions just kind of come in, and what we do, we're trying to we try to be faithful to this, is we compile a list of questions that we need to answer. Um, and before that, we allow that list to get too long, which it's already pretty lengthy. Uh, what we thought would be helpful would be to just do an episode. Maybe maybe we come back and do this again shortly uh, here soon. 
but just do an episode where we answer some of these questions in turn. Some of them more quickly, others might require full episodes in the future. Uh, but just as a way to acknowledge some of our listeners, some of those who have reached out and asked questions, we just wanted to say, hey, thanks for for doing that. Stay tuned. We're going to get to them. And so some questions, uh, we haven't built that part of our systematics yet. So we can't answer questions about um, the end times until we build that part of the system, which we're getting to. We're excited to jump back into our systematic study. But some of these questions are just, you know, questions that we've we've wanted to discuss. So um, looking forward to, to kind of unpacking some of those. Yep. And that's exactly what we have for the next uh, 30, 45 minutes here. Uh, to begin, we did have a listener reach out at reformedinformants at gmail.com. And his question was related to uh, COVID-19, the government, and how Christians should respond. Well, this morning, we just released an entire episode on that, and he had emailed us back last week. Um, So we're not going to address that because we just spent an hour and five minutes (laughs) on this week's episode. Right. Uh, Right. Trying to knock out that question from a biblical perspective. Um, so we're going to move on to question number two. Uh, question number two deals with a text from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 29. I'll read this verse, and then I'm going to send it back to TJ, and he's going to kind of lay a background and context uh, for the book of 1 Corinthians. And then uh, we're, we're going to talk about the debate or the controversy surrounding this verse. Um so 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine 29 says, For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. And the question has to do with the discerning the body or judging the body rightly. In particular, what does Paul mean? So TJ, give us a background, some context to the book of 1 Corinthians, what's really going on in general as we read through that text, and then uh, we'll we'll look at the options that we have. Right. So Paul, uh, writing to the church in Corinth, uh, he writes several letters. We know of uh, likely four letters that he wrote, and this is um, 1 Corinthians then is one of these uh, letters that has been inscripturated. We only have two. We have 1 and 2 Corinthians um, in inspired text. And in this book, of course, Paul is writing to the church there in Corinth, and he had helped found and establish that church back in the book of Acts. He had uh, developed a partnership with them. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, but the church in Corinth had some issues. They had some problems. They had some doctrine, uh, some doctrinal issues. They had some behavior issues, uh, some major concerns. Um, in other words, I would say the church in Corinthians is not exactly a model for ministry, right? Like, like they had some issues that had to be sorted through. Um, but the way that Paul outlines the book is in the first six chapters he kind of responds to things which he had heard. He kind of gives them doctrinal teaching. Um, he, he has some some very rich and important doctrine early. Uh, then he talks about divisions um, that had happened in the church, um, issues that he had heard about, specifically the sexual immorality that was going on there in chapter 5. Um, again, he's just kind of responding and giving uh, apostolic um rebuking in many cases, but but instructing them on how to respond to these things. But then something interesting happens, and that is in chapter 7, verse 1, Paul kind of shifts. He transitions a little bit, and he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And so individually, 
he begins to systematically respond to questions that they had sent him. And so that's what he's doing throughout the rest of First Corinthians. Uh, he's talking about First Corinthians seven talks about marriage and the widows and the unmarried, and that's a full conversation in and of itself in chapter seven. Uh, chapter eight dealing with food offered to idols. He he continues uh, in chapter nine talking about his role as an apostle. Um, uh, warnings against idolatry in chapter 10. And then he gets into, in the middle of chapter 11, he begins to discuss the Lord's Supper. And so that's kind of where we find ourselves in this context is that some some of the, the members of this church here in Corinth have reached out to Paul. They're asking questions. And so Paul's going to take their question um, and then instruct them in how to rightly um, take the Lord's Supper and respond to that. So with that in mind, walking through as he gets into chapter 11, Lance, how do we come to understand this verse? This verse that I think the our our listener rightly uh, pointed out, it's seemingly a difficult or, or obscure phrase. How do how does this uh, how do how do we go to interpret and understand what this means? Right, uh, Paul is laying out again the really the instructions directions for uh, taking the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, communion. And then in the middle of that, in verse 29, let me read it again. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Okay, so that, that last portion, if he, who, if he does not judge the body rightly, or discerning the body, it could be translated, or not recognizing the body. And I think A.T. Robertson actually says that the Greek word here is where we get our English word discriminating. So the idea is that something is going on here where someone isn't discerning or recognizing correctly in the midst of taking communion. So uh, something uh, needs to be flushed out here. Um, And would you say then, Lance, not to cut you off, would you say, though, that this is a direct continuation of verse 28 whenever he says let uh let a person examine himself then so this is the self-reflection and so now we're talking about the discernment or the uh you know discrimination of of internally is that is that kind of what paul's talking about here yeah that's the direction he's going Uh, he he, he's talking about a distinguishing or a or a discerning um in one's own heart and in one's own mind um, about specific issues related to communion. In other words, what Paul's advocating here is he doesn't want someone to be absent-minded from uh, this ordinance. He he wants them to be all there. Okay, so we've got a couple, actually three options uh, where the commentators and theologians land on what Paul is talking about when he says not judging the body rightly. Option number one uh, is a failure to recognize the entire scope of the Lord's physical body and his death. Okay, so uh, that's one option here is that the people, the church, partaking in communion, they're failing to recognize uh, Christ's death. They're failing to recognize his sacrificial death. In other words, they're absent-minded to the point where they're not thinking upon Christ when he's talking about taking of his body and taking of his blood. Uh, option number two is that there could be a failure to distinguish 
the communion ordinances, that food, from everyday common meals. In other words, people are just treating communion like they would treat breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Mm-hmm. And then option three uh, is a failure to discern or recognize the unity that is in the body of Christ, the church. Now, I would say that option number three was the rarest of all of the options that I came across. In fact, I only came across that view in one commentary, uh, Gordon Fee uh, advocates that what's in view here is a not thinking upon the unity that the body of Christ has in taking of uh, this ordinance. So we've got three options here. All the commentaries that I checked, and I checked about a dozen, they all landed on really the first two options, not understanding or recognizing what Christ did on the cross and his body that was beaten for our sake, or you know, treating communion like it was every other meal. Any comments on that? Well, I, I think that, um, actually, yeah, two comments come to mind. One, I think this speaks to the fact that what you just mentioned, I think this speaks to um, the validity of this question, right? For one thing, when you have some division amongst theologians, commentators throughout history, um, there are those who have kind of camped on both sides of, the, of this interpretation. Um, I don't think it's going to determine key doctrines, right? Like this is not a, if I say, if I said, Hey, I'm going to land on option one, you say, nah, I'm option two. Like we're still bros. We still got like, we're fine. Nothing's changing here. But I do think it speaks to the validity of the question, right? Like, Hey, there, there's not consensus on this. Uh, That would be my first observation. I think my second observation would be that sometimes uh, interpreting and understanding certain aspects or certain nuances, uh, finer points of scripture, um, can be very challenging. And um, I think that there's a, a humility that I want to bring here to say, I'm not willing to camp out and say, now I'm not writing a commentary on First Corinthians right now either, but if I had to, man, like this would be difficult. I, I don't know that I want to put a flag uh, stake in the ground and say, this is me, come at me on this. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think that there's a, I see both uh, sides of this have validity, could could be some combination, could be a little subtle nuances of both. I know which way I lean, but I don't think it's necessarily important to make that uh, stand, if that makes sense. What, w- what would you say to that? No, I like what you said, um, because there isn't really uh, universal agreement on this particular text. And if we take the attitude as, man, I've just figured this baby out. Like, right. uh, like here is the meaning of the text, and it definitely cannot meet mean something else. Rather, I, I think uh, taking that approach is really the opposite approach that we want to take. We want to come to the text humbly. Um, well, we would take that approach with something that is, that is very clear in Scripture, right? Like we're we're not gonna we're not gonna waver on certain key clear like not difficult to interpret or hey it's that's what it says but for something like this like how do we interpret the nature and the understanding of the body and what that means like is i th- because i think both aspects of um whether it's either way what we have here I-, I think this would probably be my concluding thought on this either way what we have here is the corinthians had an a false understanding or at least a poor attitude towards taking the supper, whether they didn't really understand the significance of the ordinance or whether they didn't understand the meaning behind the significance of the ordinance. Either way, they, Paul's warning here is saying, 
listen, pay attention and understand what you're doing. This is a serious matter. Uh, it's not trivial. It's not breakfast. And it's also not just because it's something that we need to do to fill up the time before kickoff uh, Sunday afternoon after church is over, right? Like, like this is a serious ordinance. It's a serious deal. And so um, we we must pay attention to the purpose behind it, but also um, the the uniqueness of this meal. So I think both are really lending towards the final goal. The final purpose is having a right understanding of the supper. Yeah, I, I like it. I like where you brought that that uh, context begs an examination of the mind and the heart during this ordinance. Right. It's not flippant. It's not casual. This is a big deal. Therefore, every aspect of it should have that type of weight, should have that type of meaning. This is a weighty matter. And Paul doesn't want them to just shove this thing to the side. And he says, look, and if you partake in an unworthy manner, you're going to bring judgment upon yourself. Right. So wherever we fall on the nuance of this particular meaning, it is a heart issue that needs to be examined. Yeah. Um, and you could yeah. say that those first two options would be the route that you would need to take the examination. I would agree. I would agree. So good question. Um, don't pretend like we have all the answers, but I do appreciate Lance the work you did on that and digging up some of those commentaries. And and I do hope just little si- side note here. I do hope that our listeners understand when that question is asked, work goes into that. Like like we didn't just kind of ah yeah we'll just kind of chat about it or we didn't pretend like we know everything. Like okay let's use some of the resources that we have to dig into that have that conversation. So um, I was I was encouraged by that. So uh, let's move on to the next question. We've had to we devoted the entire episode to the one the first one so we didn't really address that um, we we just looked at number two number three question comes in should I in our context twenty first century America today or wherever else I might be should I try to cast out demons should I try to cast out demons Lance is that like <clears throat> I'm senior pastor now so like is that something that I need to like add like I'm I'm working on a business card like. Central Baptist Church, senior pastor, demon, depossessor. Like, what, what? how do I answer that? Well, I figured you were going to bring me in to do a seminar on casting out <laughs> demons at some point, but... I can't afford I you for that. I, I haven't received uh, the invitation yet. Yeah. And don't blame it on COVID. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, man, this is such a great question uh, because you will find in... Um, maybe Pentecostal Assembly of God, charismatic uh, movements, e- even um, y- you could probably throw um, Roman Catholicism in there in-, in terms of maybe like-mindedness regarding casting out demons. I, I think that all of those groups would advocate for casting out demons. Um, however, I, I would strongly disagree with that, not based on personal opinion, but I think the scripture, in particular the New Testament, um, makes a pretty clear-cut case that Christians shouldn't be casting out demons, and that is not part of our sanctification, that's not part of our walk with Christ, that's not part of our um, Christian living. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, I I would say no, that we should not be doing that. Now, I think we can pull together some biblical support, so I'm going to throw it back to you and uh, let you kind of get the ball rolling on this, and then we'll we'll kind of tag team it uh, as we move through this this question. Yeah, so 
um, I agree with you. And I think what you said about those other uh, denominations and church thought lines, I think that's important. And all cards on the table, Lance, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think I speak for both of us when I say that we would call we would classify ourselves as cessationists. Uh, is that right. fair to say? Yeah. We'll, we'll come back and do an episode on that, maybe multiple. Um, but if you're unfamiliar with the term cessationist, essentially what Lance and I hold based on what we believe the biblical evidence uh, tells us is that the miraculous... Uh, activity working through of God working through human figures, uh, that activity has ceased. It has uh, been, it has now, there's an, as cessation, meaning it no longer occurs. So, in other words, those gifts, the gifts of, of uh, speaking in tongues or of miracles, I just read today in the book of Acts where Paul's handkerchief like falls on the ground, somebody picks it up and takes it to the town nearby and they're healed. Like that stuff doesn't happen today. And we believe that there's a biblical case to be made for that as to why. Uh, but speaking specifically here of the, the act of casting out demons, uh, the height of demon activity all all culminates and points towards the activity that occurs while Jesus was on the earth. This is uh, this is the height of spiritual warfare occurring, um, the ministry of Christ, the temptation of Christ, the uh, driving out of demons, the what Jesus is about to do. All of those things happen uh, at a at a critically high level during the gospel period, so while Jesus is on the earth. And so you have uh, Jesus, you have the 12, you have the 70, you have examples in the gospels of these things occurring. Um, but to my knowledge, Lance, fill me in here if I'm wrong, but to my knowledge, we don't see any reference to demon activity, to um, casting out of demons, anything beyond the book of Acts. You see early on in the book of Acts, do you even see it in the book of Acts? I know you see it in the gospels. Um, do we actually see demon casting out demons occur in the book of Acts? I can't think of any off the top of my head. Yeah, and the Old Testament, no. Uh, there's a couple texts that mention demons uh, in reference to false gods or idols uh, in, in the book of Psalms, I think. Um, those texts are mainly concerned with, look, people say they're worshiping false gods, but there really is no God. It's just a demon, right? right? Um then you get to the New Testament, like you said, you've got an elevation or an escalating of demonic possession and demonic activity uh, with Jesus casting out demons. He gives the disciples, according to Luke 9, 1, he gives them the power to cast out demons. In Luke 10, he gives the 70 power to cast out demons. And then, you know, picking up where you left off, when you get to the book of Acts, uh, you have the disciples with the ability to cast out demons, but that's not on the forefront of the pages of Acts or their ministry. In fact, yeah, it's Acts chapter 19. You get to Acts chapter 19 to the, there's some Jewish exorcists that attempt to cast out demons, but that was an unsuccessful um, endeavor. And in fact, it tells us that the uh, demon possessed man there, um, actually basically beat them up and stripped them of all their clothes and the exorcist had to run off off naked. So you, you've got a pattern of decreasing demonic activity in terms of uh, hands-on apostolic uh, casting out of demons. You just don't see that. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah, and, go ahead. And you, well, and I like what you put here on the guide. You don't have a single command in 
in um, in certainly in the New Testament. Um, you have a couple of specific cases in the Gospels where Jesus gives the authority to do these things to his 12, to the 12. Uh, but beyond that, there is no explicit command. There are no passages in the New Testament which allude to the practice or the activity of passing out demon, of casting out demons. Uh, think through Paul's letters. I mean, in those 13 letters, uh, he speaks of the principalities. He speaks of the powers of the air, but he gives no indication that that should be the activity of Christian um, of Christian ministry to say, hey, this is your task is to go and seek them out and cast them out. Um, instead, the role of ministry and the role of the activity of, of believers is to preach the gospel, right? Like you preach, you preach the gospel unto salvation, you preach uh, a gospel to repent and to believe. Um, the the activity now I've been on the mission field where I've seen what I believe was likely demonic activity, um, but I didn't have any um i didn't have any authority to speak to speak directly to that demon and instead that's that's god's activity that's not mine and so um prayed um preached the word legitimately preached what the word says and leave the rest of that in god's hands jesus a uh, distinguishing mark of his ministry was to cast out demons uh, luke chapter 11 uh, verse 20 says this is jesus if i cast out d- demons then the the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus is saying, look, this is a mark of my messiahship. Um, And then the reason that the 12 could, as you mentioned, according to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, they were to be Jesus's witnesses. Therefore, they had authority um, and evidence that Jesus had, in fact, um, basically had made those 12 to be the men to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So there's a, right. an authority, a confirmation, Second um, Corinthians right. chapter 12, verse 12 says. That's right. That's exactly right. So again, interesting question, good question. Um, but practically, I think you and I are, are pretty firm on that. No, shouldn't be trying to cast out demons. Uh, don't have the authority to do so. Don't have the mandate behind it biblically. So uh, best to um, not attempt to do that. Um, okay. Another question that came in, uh, this one is, um, part of our title as well. Uh, what about the age of people in the genealogies? You go back to Genesis and especially in Genesis chapter five, you've got a long list of names and so-and-so begat so-and-so, so-and-so was the father of so-and-so. Uh, you see the same thing in, in Genesis chapter, uh, 11 after the tower of Babel and you see, a difference. You see, these the lifespan of individuals uh, was incredibly long uh, early on, pre-flood, and then after the flood, they begin to dwindle. They begin to come down. So the question becomes: wh- How did how did these people become so old? How did we get such senior citizens on the earth uh, before the flood? So, well, how do we how do we navigate that question? Yeah, Genesis chapter five is the chapter on senior citizenship. <laughs> We've got people that are living eight, 900 years, which is just staggering, right? I mean, that, that, that is, that is mind blowing. Uh, before we answer this question, uh, first off, I would want to say that, you know, we take the ages in Genesis five literal because we've been taking numbers literal since Genesis chapter one. Look, we understand, uh, let me give you an example here. We understand in the new Testament when Jesus says he, fed the 5,000. 
the the story of the 5,000. We understand based on context that that is clearly just a general number. But we, we don't have that here in Genesis 1, and we also do not have that in Genesis 5. So when it says so-and-so was 900 and whatever years old, we take that literally. They were they were mm-hmm. literally that old. Well, um, I've, I've heard it argued before. I'd heard somebody say, well, really, that's like part of the Hebrew counting system. And so you have to divide those numbers by 10. And that's how, you know, you divide it by 10. And Methuselah lived to be... 969 years well really he only lived to be like 96 and that sounds like a reasonable answer maybe i mean i don't really know what basis you would have for that but earlier in the chapter we have so things like in verse 12 says that when kenan had lived 70 years he fathered mahaliel well was he a seven-year-old dad like as soon as you start to make those divisions you have major problems with the other numbers and so it's inconsistent to do that Uh, And so we want to be consistent in our hermeneutics. So I think that's a great observation, a great place to start. The other thing I would add to that, too, is that theories abound on this. There are lots of, well, how does this, how is it possible? And scholars have attempted to answer these questions. Apologists have attempted to answer these questions. Uh, Some of those questions are, are valid and we need to be able to answer them. But sometimes we need to be able to say, Look, I, I don't know the specific answer. I just know that that's what the word says, and that's what that's the truth. That's how it is. Um, I'll answer the best way that I've seen this this question answered, and that is that um, some some Old Testament and uh, some Old Testament scholars and some apologists believe that um, when the flood happened, that's when you see the change. Like you can see the the ages were incredibly high. And then the genealogy after the flood, when you get to Genesis 10, uh, Genesis 11, those genealogies start to trickle down and something changed. So some have suggested that when the waters of the deep burst forth and the water from the heavens came down, that, that those waters from above the earth, uh, all the way back established in Genesis 1, we got separated the waters from the waters, that there was mm-hmm. some kind of water right around the earth, whether it was an ice ring or it was just water in space, whatever, and that kept out some of the UV rays. It it it, it changed our atmosphere and made it to where... Um, made to where the oxygen levels would have been incredibly high. And so essentially it would have been a paradise on the earth that has been under a curse after the flood. And so that water came down and now that barrier has been removed. And that's why over the course of time, those numbers have changed. So I think it's a satisfactory answer for me. Right. Yeah. That, that's where I land too, TJ. And the, the verse you mentioned there um, about the waters being divided is Genesis 1, 6. It says, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. Mm-hmm. Um, because you'll notice, at least based on the text and your explanation of it, that there was water that was held up in the atmosphere right. at some point pre-flood because Genesis chapter 2, um, it tells us, in verse 5, that the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth. So all the way up until the point of the flood, there there was no rain. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all of a sudden the heavens are open, 40 days, 40 nights. Well, we get that as we get right. into Genesis chapter 6. Uh, but as you said, when you go from Genesis 5 and the genealogies there to Genesis 11 and the genealogies there, and then you get all the way to Abraham, um, you know, Abraham lives to 120 or so years old. 
Right. So you, you see a huge decrease in age. And this is one of the discussions I always had with my students when they asked about dinosaurs. I always advocated that, you know, dinosaurs couldn't handle the post flood environment as we see, even with humans not living as long that, you know, dinosaurs may have yeah. possibly um, died off uh, shortly thereafter. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm glad you mentioned that. I actually, uh, I love dinosaurs. I'm fascinated by dinosaurs. I don't know if you can see it. I got a little dinosaur on the back of my uh, desk back there, but I, I love dinosaurs. I'm fascinated by them. But uh, just real quick to add to that, dinosaur means uh, the word originally was created. It means terrible lizard. And what I always tell people is imagine a lizard which never stops growing. Imagine like the most like wicked, crazy, cool looking lizard that grows for 900 years. Like, yeah, that yeah. thing's going to become massive. Right. And so the, <laughs> the atmosphere changed and now we've got these tiny little versions of them scurrying around on the earth. But imagine those things being, um, alive for hundreds of years the way humans were. Um, so yeah, it's a fascinating concept. And I think the, the water question answers that. Now the details of that, the science behind it, sure. I can't tell you, but I just know that's what the Bible says. And I trust those that are smarter than me on the subject. All right. Question number five, I'm going to send this one back to you. UFOs and aliens, UFOs and aliens. Yeah. Uh, yeah. well, this question came in recently. I think, I, I don't know this, but I think that there's maybe been something in the news related to UFOs. In fact, I think Al Mohler talked about this on the briefing one one morning. Um, and so I do know that there's been some conversation. And I think over the course of over the course of time, this situation, this conversation comes up over and over again. Sometimes it's in pop culture. Uh, sometimes it's in the media. Um, but I think this question, the question about are there such things as aliens? Do aliens exist? Um, are there, what about UFOs? What about things that we don't understand or see in space? Like what's really happening there? Um, well, I, I think a couple of observations about that before I attempt to answer that question or before we attempt to answer it. Um, I think that the desire to understand that, I think the, the desire to want to ask this question or maybe, I hope that there's life on another planet. Like I even hear secular minds talking about this all the time. Um, I think it's just a desire for something greater, right? Like we, we all have a longing for something to acknowledge something great, to acknowledge something good. And most people don't want that to be God. And so maybe it's aliens, you know? And so that's kind of, that's kind of a, uh, written on the heart. Right. And so I always think that that's interesting. Um, but here's how I would answer that question. Uh, in terms of, in terms of, are there aliens on, in, in outer space somewhere. Well, I would say Genesis 3.20 tells us that Adam called the woman Eve because she's the mother of all living. Um, so I believe that based on that understanding, that those who have souls, those that have life, would be the human race. Um, and that would be included in, um, because Eve is the mother of all living, she's the mother of the human race. I'd say that Genesis 3.20 gives me that picture. Uh, and then I would also say that there is no indication in any capacity that anything God did in creation extended beyond the earth. Like he created the, the sun, moon and the stars, but he created them from the vantage point of the earth. And so um, earth then becomes the place or the kind of the stage on which this divine uh, scene unfolds, the, the divine drama unfolds. And so in his creation, God has made earth to be kind of the central stage. And uh, there's no indication of anything outside of earth. And um, so I would say that I can't 
100% rule it out because I don't know that I have a chapter and verse that says like no aliens exist, you know, but like pretty much I'm saying no, no shot because the Bible doesn't speak anything of it. Right. I, li- I like uh, what you said there about uh, creation uh, with Eve being the mother of all the living. Um, and the Bible really doesn't have a category for anything outside of this world. You know, the Bible was written, you know, over a span of 1400 years on multiple uh, continents um, by multiple people and woven within this story. It even describes animals. We've got the book of Job talking about animals. We've got Genesis talking about animals. You can even read from the prophet of Isaiah you know, he's talking about animals. And then we get to the New Testament and Jesus is using animals as illustrations. And there's some discussion on whether or not animals will be in the new heaven and the new earth. So the Bible speaks on things that actually exist. Uh, the Bible yep. speaks on things as an actual reality. It doesn't make any mention of aliens, UFOs, things of that nature. And I take that as it's not an actual reality. And that's why they aren't mentioned. It, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't, yep. it doesn't exist. You know, it's not, those things aren't a foreign concept to God because he's omniscient, but they're literally not there. Right. Right. And I, I would say just on, to wrap this question up, when you, we, when we think about like this whole UFO thing, right? Like this, this mystery and the intrigue of the UFO. Um, well, I would say, first of all, we got to be careful with what we believe because, like that is it is what it is like understand your source whenever you see something like that uh but i know people um thinking of one person in in particular who swears on their life that they experienced and they saw it and it's like okay like it's i she's you know i know i sound crazy but i promise this is what i saw well is that luke Cheap shot. Um, I can't. I'm not going to divulge any information here. It's, this is a. This is not a close uh, relative or friend. This is an acquaintance uh, that I've just witnessed uh, some social media postings from. Uh, that's too good. But but when that when when somebody thinks like, oh, this is my experience, I think my my pushback would just simply be a UFO is a UFO. Uh, it's unidentified. We don't know what it is. Um, I don't know. Could it be? something beyond could it be something beyond maybe what we understand possibly uh but that doesn't validate or or give any credence to the concept of there being some other type of race or life form or something somewhere else so uh, just being careful with those things and letting us stay grounded in the scriptures i think is really necessary um for a topic like that yeah let, let me uh let me add to that a resource that i think would be helpful uh walter martin uh, decades ago, wrote a book called The Kingdom of the Occult. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a few hundred pages, but chapter by chapter, it will address certain issues like this, UFOs, aliens, Ouija boards, yeah. you know, things of that nature that, you know, th- that a lot of people have questions about uh, and are right. looking for biblical responses. That book is pretty much the standard on on these issues. And I would have quoted from it, but it's... Uh, 
in my office at church. So, well, I think I might have it up on my shelf behind me, but I'm not going to risk getting up there to get it right now. So, uh, <laughs> I'll take your word for it. Uh, okay. Uh, we've got two questions left that I want to try to get to, uh, before we wrap up. And this, this next one I think is a really, really important one. I'm seeing it, especially in the context where I find myself now. Um, and it's related to church membership. So the question is, do I have to be a member of a local church? Nowhere in the Bible does it discuss church membership. So chapter and verse, become a church member, right? Like repent, be baptized, join a church. Like that's not in the Bible. So do I actually have to become a member of a church? How do, how do we start to unpack or answer that question? Right. Yeah. I mean, I would say, yes, there isn't chapter verse, like you said, but all over the New Testament, it's assumed that Christians were part of a church. We mentioned this on previous episodes that Paul writes to the Corinthians. He writes to the Philippians. Uh, John writes to the seven churches uh, in Asia Minor. Um, so there's this there's this idea of Christians belonging to local yeah. bodies. Um and then there's also this idea that these people are under the leadership of elders and that there's deacons that serve alongside one another in the church and that there's shepherds and overseers and people are submit to their leaders. I mean, yeah, look, there's no chapter verse. We understand that. But you would have to rip out almost the entire New Testament to get away from the idea that Christians are not supposed to be part of the church because in fact they are part of yeah. the church yeah man you nailed it that's I, I i love how you how you address those things you use that word belong like that's um that's really important you know that they belong to the church it's it's uh it's a mutual accountability right that the the church itself um is accountable to uh the overseers to the elders um that's that's part of what it means, Hebrews 13, 17, to submit to your uh, leadership. But at the same time, the overseers and uh, the elders, they are accountable to the congregation. And so they must shepherd their flock. They must uh, give that account for, for those whom uh, they've been entrusted with. And so you have what you have is you have the concept in the New Testament um, of of church of local churches filled with a congregation and offices of the church. Now, membership is just implied in this because without it, these things can't function the way they're supposed to. So how do you actually discipline someone if they don't have any kind of belonging to this church? Like, I just float around, show up on Sunday morning. I'm not a quote-unquote member. I'm just a regular attender. Well, then you can't be disciplined because you don't have any uh, credence to that. And so... Um, I, I think that there's such an implication. It's such a strong implication. And uh, and you mentioned you'd have to rip out so much in the New Testament. We'd have to rule out, rip out like the entire uh, stretch of 2,000 years of church history to get away from it. Like this has been the pattern of the church for 2,000 years uh, to to keep records. I mean, they keep records in the book of Acts. They, they knew who was saved, how many there were. Daily they were being added. They met in certain homes. They knew where each other, uh, where, where other church members were uh, because they held they held uh, one another accountable, and they met together. And whenever there began began to become persecution, they had to know who was who and who was where and who could they trust. And all of those things lend to some form of administrative membership type of of uh, relationship with the local church. Right. That's good. That's good. Well, the last question for today, we're going to postpone this thing. 
let's get this question out there. And when we kick off another episode, uh, we'll, we'll start with this one. Uh, since Revelation is a difficult and supposedly scary book, should I skip reading it? Yes. You got a definitely. quick answer? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Do not, do not read it. Do not reading. No, we're kidding. We're kidding. No, absolutely um, not. Yeah, we'll, we'll pick up the next uh, mailbag episode uh, dealing with that question um, and try and navigate through those difficulties related to that book um, in, in, in a future episode. Uh, so at least for my initiative, as we wrap things up here, um, look, as we're going through these individual questions, it's just a reminder to me to have a biblical worldview on everything, whatever mm -hmm. question comes to mind, whatever question is asked, um, to always go to the word of God first That's to good. frame, uh, my mindset and my heart on the issue. Um, and then, move forward and go on uh, from there. I always want to be grounded in scripture and in God's word and in his revelation before I, you know, fill my mind with the things of this world. Yeah, no, that's good. I would say just to echo that, man, questions are a good thing, but let's make sure we don't cross that line between uh, what the Bible says and unnecessary extra biblical speculation. So uh, I think that's really good. We appreciate those questions that have come in. Um, and I hope that in this time that we've kind of spent these this time answering these questions, uh, we've tried to have the appropriate balance there to say, this is what the Bible says. Beyond that, we're not so sure. Uh, if you have those questions, make sure you send those in. Uh, if you're not doing so already, of course, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, subscribe to our YouTube channel, like us on Facebook at Reformed Informants, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at our underscore informants. And then, of course, you can find links to all of those things, to all our social media platforms, all of our previous episodes. You can go to www.themajestiesmen.com slash Reformed Informants. If you have any questions or suggestions for topics of discussion, feel free to email us at reformedinformants at gmail.com. <laughs>